And while they're departing, I'll give you a quick uh, update. We uh, had a group of about a dozen men who uh, joined up in Jackson for the Mid-South Men's Rally. Sandy Wilson from Second Pres in Memphis was our speaker, and he did a tremendous job. The, the messages were, uh, were excellent, and it was a great time of fun and fellowship. We saw a lot of people from, who were friends from other places that, uh, throughout the Mid-South, especially Mississippi, that it was good to, to greet. Uh, one funny thing that happened was uh, when it was all over, we, you know, we were talking to people and, and people were filtering out of the sanctuary and, and, uh, and I looked around and realized that the only people left in the sanctuary w- was our crew and we were happily talking away to one another, visiting, and they were turning the lights off on us. And I said, let's go, we can talk in the van. We don't need to hang around here and we, we need to get back home. So we finally got home about one o'clock, but know that the men had a great time of fun, uh, fellowship and heard great, uh, great preaching as well. Uh, I'm, I'm brought to that to mind, I'm, that, that is brought to my mind because the passage that we're actually, uh, that we just read and we're looking at today is, uh, has some equivalents in the New Testament. And one of those equivalents is Colossians 3, 1 and following. And that's one of the passages that Sandy Wilson spoke on about being spiritual minded. Uh, and, and you can also look at passages like Ephesians 5, 17 and following, uh, where it talks about walk, walking by the Spirit and not uh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh. And uh, you can also look at passages like we looked at in Sunday school this morning, 1 Peter 1, 14 and following. Uh, I'm, I'm struck by how the New Testament uh, has a unified message. And today, as we look at this passage, uh, hopefully that message will come across to all of us. Now, how, how can we make an impact for Christ where we live? You know, we, we in the church want to see the church grow. Uh, we want to see the church make a difference uh, in in our town, throughout the Gulf Coast, even throughout the world. But we live in difficult times, and we see the decay of our society around us, and it's easy to become discouraged by all the immorality and the rejection of Christianity uh, that we see, especially on TV and the news and, uh, and, and just in our experience from day to day. It be very difficult. So how can we be... Uh, light in the darkness. Well, I think this passage has a lot to say about that. I think it's a, a good first place to look. How can we make an impact along the Gulf Coast? How can we make an impact where we live and amongst the people with whom we have influence? Sandy Wilson uh, commented, made this comment. He says, perhaps the most important thing for any of us to do in glorifying God is to profess our trust in him, like Kristen and Fran did this morning, and and we can do that in other ways as well, to profess our trust in him and to live out genuinely the implications of our faith. On the other hand, one of the most damaging things that we can do is to profess our faith and then contradict that same faith by our disobedient behavior. How many times have we heard someone say, if that's the way Christians are, then I don't want to have anything to do with Christianity. You know, they comment on the hypocrisy. Inaccurately, truly, they do. Uh, They see the hypocrisy that is there. 
Mahatma Gandhi famously said, I like your Christ, I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And of course, that should never be so. And that's why Paul begins this section of Scripture by saying, in verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord. Now we read that and we think, uh, you know, what does that mean? I mean, it really doesn't strike us. But really what he's saying is, I, I want to insist on something. I'm telling you something that I am insisting on. This is of utmost importance. And I want to lay uh, some deep emphasis on this point. It is, it is of utmost importance. And that is that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Now, that brings us to our points today. First, Christians must not walk as the Gentiles do. And then we see that Christians have, on the other hand, learned Christ. And finally, uh, we need to be renewed. uh, we We must be renewed by putting off and putting on. And we'll look at that in some detail in a moment. But Christians must not walk as the Gentiles do. And what does Paul mean by Gentiles? You know, we read a lot in the Bible about Jews and Gentiles, and we've read in uh, Ephesians, particularly in chapter 2 uh, and, uh, and the latter verses, where it talks about how there is no longer a dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, uh, between any people group when it comes to becoming part of the body of Christ. The dividing wall of hostility is broken down, and the two have been made one person. And so, but he's, he's not using the word Gentiles here in that sense. These Ephesians were primarily Gentiles, and they had been raised in a Gentile, uh, as Gentiles in a Gentile culture. So what he's referring to here is not their religious beliefs per se, but the fact that they had no reference to God whatsoever. In in other words, he's saying, you you must no longer live as pagans do. Uh, The people... Uh, of Ephesus and the surrounding areas for that matter, the Gentile regions, were people who lived without any reference to the true God whatsoever. They, they were people whose thinking was not informed by divine revelation, by scriptures that had been handed down by God. And they were people who lived without any kind of eternal perspective. Uh, they, uh, they just live their lives for today and to do whatever they wanted to do. And so Paul is t- saying to these Ephesians, look, you used to be Gentiles and you were raised that way and you had that way of thinking about things, but now that you're believers, now that you're Christians, you, don't, you shouldn't walk that way anymore. You shouldn't go in that direction. And then he tells us, what that direction consisted of. How do the Gentiles walk? We see it in verses 18 through 19. They walk in the futility of their minds. Futile, useless, empty ways of thinking. You know, they they had thoughts about things, uh, they, they never thought about things in reference to God whatsoever. Just pointless thinking. They are darkened in their understanding. In other words, they're incapable of perceiving, not able to understand the things of God and and really truth. And because of all this, they're alienated 
from the life of God because of this ignorance. They don't really know anything about God at all, and they don't live in reference to him. And it tells us here, it's all due to their hardness of heart. And it's not just meaning uh, that their hearts were callous and hard and like a rock, but he's talking about rigor mortis of the heart, spiritual death. Their hearts are dead. He refers to that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, you were dead, talking to the Ephesians, you were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you once walked. But now you've ma been made alive in Christ. The Gentiles, the pagans, they had rigor mortis of the heart. Their hearts were dead spiritually. And because their hearts were dead spiritually, uh, it, it, it was, it, they, they were futile in their thinking, darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. So it's important to see that the hardness of heart was what was, their, what was the root problem. It was a heart problem that they had, and they were just living it out. The result of that disposition of their souls was that they were callous. They lost the capacity to feel shame or embarrassment. That's what that word means. Callous uh, and had given themselves up to sensuality. Sensuality is behavior completely lacking in moral restraint. Usually talking about sexual licentiousness, extreme immorality. And, and it tells us here that they were greedy for it. Greedy for every kind of immorality and filthiness. And that's the, the world in which the Ephesians grew up and lived. This was the way that they lived their lives before Christ came in, invaded their souls with his spirit and, and washed away their sins and cleansed them and brought them in to the people of God. They were once pagans. and They lived in this pagan environment. And so now they were continually tempted to fall back into that way of thinking, the way in which they were raised. Well, you think, well, we're, we don't live in a pagan culture, you know, like, like they, they did back in Bible times, but turn on the news and what he's just described is exactly what we see around us. You know, people who are unable to grasp spiritual things. I mentioned last week about looking at some websites that talked about uh, articles, comment, people commenting on an article about abortion and how people just seem like they don't grasp the fact that, that this is a life that's, that's being ended. Looked at some other websites as well, coming from a non-Christian perspective, and you think, how can they, how can they have this viewpoint? They, we're not even on the same page. We're not even, they don't even think the way that I think about things coming from a Christian perspective. And it's hard to even identify with their perspective. It's because they are coming from a complete disposition of heart because of the spiritual death that's there. But that's the place from whence we all come as sinners, we're born in this world with sinners. We have a sinful disposition. And we are tempted to fall back into those patterns of thinking, pagan ways of thinking. We're bombarded on a daily basis with uh, the media, television, television shows, and music to buy into the world's way of thinking, pagan way of thinking, relaxing morals, eager to, to push you into living uh, lives of sensuality, lives of materialism, uh, lives of hedonism, pushing us constantly, saying, yes, do this, do this. We're constantly tempted to 
accommodate ourselves to the world around us. And when we do so, when we accommodate to the world around us, our testimony of Christ suffers. And people say things like Gandhi does. Why should I be a Christian? They're no different than I am. I'm afraid as I've studied this passage that, it, that I became quite convicted. You know, as a missionary in a, in a land that had rejected Christianity, uh, I think that I accommodated myself to the patterns of behavior. I was trying to break down stereotypes and to reach out to the culture and say, I'm not so different than you. I mean, I had a good reason for doing so because, because of the, the skewed viewpoint they're coming from. But I'm afraid in doing so, my testimony suffered. I fell into those bad ways of thinking and I accommodated myself too much. And it's so easy for us to do. And if we really want to make a difference in our culture, we've got to be different than the culture and, and we've got to engage the culture with those differences and say, you know, we don't do those things. Not in a judgmental way like we're superior to you, and we'll talk about that in a moment but in a way that says, yes, here's the reason that I, I have this hope, that I have this way of living. Here's the reason that, I, that I'm different, not because I think I'm better than you, but I have a different way of thinking about things because of what Christ has done for me and, and the perspective that he gives me now and this eternal perspective of things, that I'm being prepared for holiness, that, that uh, God's going to give me one day and that new heavens and new earth when sin is done away with. I'm, I'm getting ready for that even now. So when we live that way, it's a true testimony to the, to the work God does in people's lives. It tells the world that there is change that can happen in our lives. So the Ephesians were tempted, just, and, and we are, just like them, tempted to fall into a pagan way of thinking. Surely anybody who is a Christian understands this and has experienced this, that you have been tempted to go along with the ways of the world, and it's a battle constantly on a daily basis to go against that flow. Well, secondly, we see here that Christians have learned Christ. Uh, Christians have learned Christ in verse 20. That is not the way you learned Christ, uh, Paul tells the Ephesians. You know, you have, you have experienced something different, he says. And that word learned is an interesting word because it means more than just acquiring knowledge. You'll see it says there, that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him. That word about is not actually in the text, in the original text. It's really, literally, and it's, if you read the King James or the NIV or some other translations, it says it accurately. I've been really pleased with this translation up until this point uh, where, it, where he, they put the word about there. I, understand, I think I understand why they do that because they're concerned about people thinking they hear voices from God, uh, literally. Paul's not saying that. But Paul is also not saying that they just heard about Christ. They have heard Christ. They have had an experience of Christ through the proclamation of the word. Let's look, first of all, at that word learned. Uh, that, that word learned is more than just acquiring knowledge. It means having the experience of something. There's, uh, you can look throughout the New Testament and see the exact word that he uses there. But there is an interesting uh, use of the word in Hebrews 5, 8 through 9. It says this about Jesus. 
Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, Jesus was always obedient. Uh, He never sinned. The Bible tells us that in other places. But what is the writer of Hebrews talking about? Because it says he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect. I mean, he wasn't imperfect before. Now, what he's talking about here is that Jesus learned obedience. He experienced obedience. He came on a mission from the Father. God God the Father gave God the Son a mission to accomplish And Jesus, along the way, was tempted. He was tempted to leave that mission behind. Satan tempted him in the wilderness and said, Bow down to me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You don't have to follow the path the Father has sent you on. I can give it it to you the quick way, the easy way. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. There was a great struggle in his soul as he faced the mission, and he faced the, the very uh, crux of that mission when he laid down his life on the cross and suffered, not just a physical death, but, a, uh, but the spiritual death, the, the wrath of God for our sin that he bore on the cross. And, and just thinking about that was almost too much for him to bear. So he was tempted to go away from the mission. He tells Peter when he, Peter starts swinging his sword around, you know, trying to defend Jesus, he says, Peter, put your sword away. I could call 10,000 angels and, and be delivered from this if I wanted to, but the time, it's the time for me to do this thing that God the Father has given me to do. So he learned obedience to the things he suffered. He practiced obedience to that message. He went the full length of obedience And so he experienced fully what it meant to be the obedient, suffering servant. And being perfected, see, it doesn't mean that he was imperfect. It means that he, it wasn't complete yet. He fulfilled it. He perfected it. He brought it to its ultimate end. He was the ultimate Savior in that he experienced everything that a Savior would have to experience to get there. So he's speaking, when he uses this term learned, of the experience that we have. So to take it back to Ephesians uh, 4, it tells us that is not the way that you learned Christ. You have had an experience of Christ, Paul is saying. You have heard him in the preaching of the word as the apostles came to you. You were taught in him. He has come into your life and you have, something has happened to you. You've had the full experience of it, and God is doing something in your lives. In Acts chapter 1, verse 1, uh, Luke is writing, and it's the second thing that he's written. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote it to a fellow named Theophilus, uh, which means friend of God. That could mean he's just writing to, you know, friend of God, uh, anybody that is a friend of God, or it could be a proper name. And in the, in the Acts, the book of Acts is written to the same Theophilus, and he says in that first verse of Acts, in the first book, meaning my gospel, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Of course, the gospel of Luke is all about the life of Jesus. And here in Acts, he's saying, 
I shared about all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is that the book of Acts is all that Jesus continued to do and teach. The crazy thing about that is in chapter 1, Jesus ascends to heaven. Uh, He is physically not present anymore after chapter 1, but there's 28 chapters in the book of Acts. What, What Luke is saying is that through the apostles, as they proclaim the word, as they witness to the resurrection throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, Jesus himself was working. He was doing it. And so when Paul says, you have learned Christ and you have heard him, not about him, they've heard about him, but they have heard him through the proclamation of the word as Jesus worked in their lives and they experienced his grace as they appropriated the salvation that Jesus secured in his life and death and resurrection. So so Jesus is saying to them, look, don't go back to the old ways, the old patterns of thinking. You have had an experience of Christ. Why would you go back? Why would you go back to that empty, futile pattern of of thinking? Christ has done something, and, and your perspective should be different and changed, and that should affect the way that you live your life. Therefore, point three, you must put off and put on. Put off, which means repentance. Put off the old self. Of course, we have remaining corruption in us. There's that battle between the old man and the new man. And the old man is still kicking. He's hanging around, but we've got to continuously put him to death, put him to death. He keeps dragging us back to the old way of living and the old way of thinking, and it's corrupt through those deceitful desires. Over-desires is the word there. The things that the heart wants and idolizes that we're tempted to put in place of God. Put that away. Put the old ways away and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The third point under this point number three, C, is the important part. You know, we're not talking about moral restraint here. You know, I'm not saying, you need to try harder. You know, stop doing this and start doing that. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Put off the old self, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self. That renewal in the spirit of your minds is key. It speaks to our motivation. Now, there's a big difference, as I've just said, between moral restraint and a supernaturally changed heart. You know, what are the marks of a supernaturally changed heart versus a morally restrained heart? You can be a moral person. There are lots of moral, there are moral atheists in the world. There are moral Muslims and Hindus, and there are all kinds of moral people in the world. But you can do that. You can be a moral person, but do it out of fear or pride or desire to have power over others. You see it in the way we discipline children sometimes. We discipline out of fear sometimes. You know, don't misbehave or you'll get in trouble. Or you'll get caught. Or, you know, don't do that or there'll be great consequences to your actions. See, we're we're motivating by fear. And their level of behavior depends on their level of fear. Anybody that's a school teacher today, as my wife is, realizes that children don't fear their teachers like they used to. And it's a bit chaotic. And difficult. I don't know how they do it. Fear doesn't work so well anymore. 
Or we tend to motivate our children out of pride. Oh, don't cry, little boy. You're acting like a girl. You know, that's, and you, you know, you're supposed to have a stiff upper lip and stop doing that. And of course, when someone's tough, a little boy's tough, he, he becomes very prideful. He's tougher than everybody else. Well, same goes for adults before God. We can motivate ourselves or be motivated by fear. I better not do that or God's going to get me. You know, I don't want to get caught. That's, a, that's fear, fearful motivation. And you can be moral living that way. It's not good, though. Or we can do it out of pride. I should act this way. I, sh- I shouldn't do that. I'm better than that. Or I shouldn't do that. What would everyone think of me if, I, if they see me doing that? This type of moral restraint leads to joylessness because of fear. You know, when you, when you obey by fear, there's no joy in that. You know, you're, just, you're succumbing to fear. And that's, that's not a joyful way of living. Or, if you obey because of pride, it makes you self-righteous. You know, or it crushes you. If you're successful, it, like I used to be, I used to be a very self-righteous person. And I guess I still am, still tempted to be in some, some ways, but I really haven't been very successful at being righteous, uh, being good, so uh, there's not much grounds for me to do that. But uh, when I was younger as a Christian, I, I was, especially in high school, I, was, I carried around a big old Bible, and I was very obnoxious, and I didn't do all the things that some of my friends did. You know, I, I a superior uh, moral person, you know, I didn't engage in this or that, didn't smoke, drink, or chew, or date girls that do. You know, didn't do any of that. And I was just horrible because I was, I was superior than everybody else, and I thought so, and I acted that way. And it was a big turnoff, and it was miser- misery for me. You know, why is there no joy in our churches? Why is there self-righteousness? and Phariseeism and hypocrisy in our churches. just because we're motivated by fear and pride. What Paul is talking about here is something different than that. It's not moral restraint. It only stops, moral restraint only stops the results of a messed up heart, because that's where the problem is, remember. But it doesn't really get to the problem, the messed up heart. It just covers over it for a little while. We have a sin nature. The heart has to be changed at its root. The heart has to be changed at the core so we have to renew the spirit of our minds to think about things in reference to the gospel, to let the gospel affect the way that we live our lives. Now, very quickly, he gives us some examples. I know we're running out of time. Uh, he says in verses, uh, what is it, 20-something through 32, 25 through 32, put away falsehood. So that's the put-off part. Each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? For we are members of one another. See, that's a spiritual way of thinking about things. You know, pagans don't think that way. They don't think, well, I'm a member of the body of Christ, so through his grace I can be part of this family of God. So I need to to put away falsehood and speak truth to one another. Or, you know, be angry and do not sin. That's the put-off part. So, you know, the, the opposite would be sinful, lingering anger, bitterness. Get rid of the bitterness. Don't let the sun go down on your anger because, look, you have, an, you have a, some opposition out there, the devil. He's roaming to and fro and, and bitterness and anger will destroy you. So you're thinking spiritually in reference to the gospel, in reference to what Christ has done and the battle that you're now in because you belong to him. 
The thief should no longer steal. Put off. Let him labor, doing honest work with his hands. That's put on. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. See, again, you're thinking uh, spiritually. I want to share with others. I want to show love for others because Christ has loved me. I'll let you read the rest because we're, we're short on time here. But, but this is all talking about repentance and faith. Living continuously in repentance and faith and letting the gospel inform our lives and living not, in, not just for today, but having a hope that we have in heaven to be spiritually minded, as it says in Colossians 3, to think in reference to spiritual things. That's what Paul's encouraging us to because we're tempted to turn our eyes like Peter. You know, when he stepped out of the boat, when Jesus was walking on water, and as long as he kept his eyes on Christ, he was okay. But when he looked at the waves around him, he started to sink. We need to keep our eyes on the prize, our eyes on Christ, our eyes on the, the future, the inheritance that's laid up for us. What is God doing in the world? What is he doing for eternity? This should, make, this should inform our, the way that we live today in our lives and how we treat one another and all that. This is what Paul's talking about here in Ephesians 4. He insists, don't walk in those ways. It's futile, empty, pointless. It's no good. You've, you've had the truth and you've experienced Christ and he's doing something great in you. Go along with that. Keep in step with the Spirit and what he's doing in your life. This is the way that we can make a difference in our world. We're different than those around us and we have a reason because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done. And we can invite others with that great love that we've, with which we've been loved to join in because it's a, it's a free gift. It's something that, that God has offered to whoever will, will whoever will come whoever will repent and put their faith in him. Let's pray together.